Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 16th of April 2023, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on the resurrection in Matthew. Right, well I want to start off with a question this morning and the question is this, it's coming up on the screen now. Why is spreading the good news about Jesus Christ something that we find difficult? There could be a lot of answers to that question, couldn't there? But many of the answers that I think we'd come up with would basically come down to this one thing about to appear now. Fear. The idea of evangelism, the idea of sharing our faith with others is a scary business, isn't it? And that's for a whole number of reasons. Now, these aren't in any particular order, but here are some of the reasons that occurred to me. First of all, there is a fear of being seen as pushy. Now, I heard once about a really devout Christian woman whose teenage son persistently showed no interest at all in Christianity. But she kept at it. Every Sunday, she'd nag him to come to church with her. Every day, she'd ask him whether he had said his prayers. Every now and again, she'd put Christian tracts in his lunchbox or in his bed so that, you know, when he opened his lunch, he'd find this Christian tract, he'd find little prayers in his bed, and so on. But all of that was to no avail. And one day, this woman, having tried absolutely everything, she dropped to her knees in despair, and she prayed fervently that whatever obstacle was stopping her son becoming a Christian would be taken away. And you've guessed what happens. There was a flash of lightning, and she completely disappeared. Now, most of us are desperate to not be like that mother, aren't we? Not so much because we're fearful about being vaporised, but because we're worried about being seen as pushy. We're worried about turning people off. We're worried about doing more harm than good. And linked to that is a fear of losing or damaging our relationships. We really value, don't we? our relationships, including those relationships that we have with non-Christians. Sharing our faith is probably something that most of us want to do with those friends and family members, and we're open to the fact that it might be okay. If we shared our faith perhaps a little bit more openly, it might work out okay. But equally, I think we have the fear that it could be rather disastrous. Our fear is that we could be seen as abusing those relationships, and that having done that or being perceived as doing that, we might struggle to get things back on track. Of course, there are other fears as well. There's the fear that we're not a good enough example of what it means to be a Christian. There's the fear we won't be able to answer the questions that our friends or our relatives put to us. And very often, underneath all of this, and this is less often acknowledged, I think, we can sometimes have a more basic fear about whether the Christian faith is really what they need. We might know that Christianity works for us. We might believe that Christianity is ultimately true. But very often, people can still have doubts about whether it will really make a practical difference to the lives of their friends and relatives. If we really believed it would make a big difference, that would affect our motivation. I think quite often, if we're honest, we don't really believe 
that it would make that much difference to them. Well, that's some of the fears people can have about sharing their faith. Some of them might apply to you more than others. But having been honest about that, let's ask ourselves another question, and it's this. Why was the early church accompanied by such explosive and radical growth? The early church grew more quickly in its first 25 years than any other time in its history. And the question we've got to ask is why? What was going on that made such a big difference? Well, there's really one answer. And it's the event that we're celebrating in this period after Easter Day. It's the event which was and is the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That is what made the vital difference. The reason why the early Christians showed such amazing energy for evangelism and sharing their faith, the overwhelming reason was because they were totally and utterly convinced about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believed that it was true, and more significantly, they knew what it meant. And it's the second of those two points, the fact that they knew what it meant, that I want us to think about this morning. Because it's, I believe, through grasping more fully the significance of Jesus' resurrection that the Holy Spirit will lead us to be more effective sharers of our faith. So we're looking, as was said earlier this morning, at the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. But I want to narrow it down. There's a lot of things that we could look at, but I want to narrow it down this morning to looking at one particular part of this account, the last part. The verses found in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Those are the verses, the four verses that we're going to be thinking in particular about this morning. It's a famous passage. It's often known as the Great Commission, because within it, the risen Jesus appearing to the 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee sends them out to go and make disciples. And in the middle of that passage, Jesus says something really, really crucial. Something that goes to the heart of what the resurrection was all about and why it was so important. And the words are being highlighted now. Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said these words? What was he particularly referring to? Well, to understand what Jesus meant when he said those words, we need to go back to the book of the Bible that Jesus was quoting when he said those words. And he was quoting from the book of Daniel. That's why we had that first reading. The book of Daniel was written at a time when the Jewish people were being oppressed. They were being oppressed by the latest of a long succession of pagan empires, and through highly colourful picture language, the book of Daniel showed how God would one day act to reverse this situation. First of all, it involves being very frank about those nations that were oppressing Israel. And what we see in chapter 7 
is the pagan empires of this world, Babylon, Persia, and so on, they're depicted as inhuman beasts. Why are they depicted in that way? To show they're the very opposite of what God intended humanity to be like. So they're described as beasts and they're grotesque and they're horrible and oppressive and scary and so on. It's all very symbolic language. And in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet speaks of them one day being stripped of their authority and being destroyed. And that's the prelude to Daniel describing another mysterious figure taking their place, whom he describes deliberately as the opposite to those beasts, he describes as one like a son of man. And Daniel says these words. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and here's the bit that Jesus was quoting. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, when those words were first written, they were talking about those Jews who had stayed faithful to God. Daniel referred to that group of people who had maintained their faith in God as being like a son of man. Because what he was saying was that their dependence on God would show them to be genuine human beings, the very opposite of those subhuman beasts who were oppressing them. And in Daniel chapter 12, right at the end of the book, he gives a further promise on behalf of God about these faithful people. He talks about their future resurrection. He declares that they'll one day rise from the dead. And let's have that verse up now. Daniel chapter 12 says about those who are faithful to God, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will rise, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, what is all of that stuff from way back in the Old Testament, what has that got to do with Jesus? Everything. Easter Day, the event we celebrated last Sunday, reveals that Jesus is the unique Son of Man. Jesus alone stayed faithful to God, didn't he? Jesus alone, therefore, was raised from the dead to receive the authority, the glory, and the sovereign power that Daniel had spoken about all those years before, to receive the dominion and the kingdom that would never be destroyed. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus meant to the early Christians. The resurrection of Jesus was the definitive proof that Jesus was Lord of the universe and that the powers of evil and the powers of oppression and all the stuff that was messing up the world, that very definitely wasn't. The resurrection showed that whatever the world looked like, oppression and evil were on the way out because God had given Jesus the authority to establish an eternal kingdom. And those early Christians, what they knew or they quickly knew, probably took a little while for it to all work out in their mind, 
But what those early Christians knew was that if they belonged to the king, if they belonged to this Messiah, if they belonged to this one that God had given this dominion and authority to, then they belonged to this kingdom. This amazing power was part of what they possessed. They were part of this exciting new reality that had broken into the world through the risen Jesus. And that's what Jesus meant when he said these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the instructions that Jesus goes on to give, they all flow from that. So the very next word is therefore. Okay, because of what's been said, that's why I've underlined it there, we then get these instructions. Therefore, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. The motivation for us to get out there and to bring people to Jesus is his resurrection. Because the resurrection shows the reality that Jesus has brought. Yes, it's a reality that awaits its final completion. That will happen when Jesus returns, but it's a reality that is already firmly established because of what we celebrated last Sunday. Jesus has already risen from the dead. See, for most people who live in this world, life has an ultimate futility, certainly in the way they perceive it. A futility that really requires them to respond either with cynicism about life, that's one option, not really expecting much, not really thinking many good things are likely to happen or certainly to have any permanence about them, that's one option. Others go for an accumulation of material things to mask that futility for as long as possible. Those are the options that people very often think are the only options available. Because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're meant to live very differently. We know, because of the resurrection of Jesus, that something so much better is here. Something so much better is available. The resurrection of Jesus shows that God's reality has arrived, that it's here to stay, and that through Jesus Christ and belonging to him, everyone, without exception, is invited to become part of that new world, that new reality, that new creation which began on Easter Day 2,000 years ago. So let's try and be practical. How should the truth of the resurrection of Jesus impact upon the way in which we share or attempt to share the good news of Jesus? How can it help us with those problems and fears that we thought about earlier? Well, fairly briefly, we can latch on, I believe, to four key phrases that the risen Jesus uses in his instructions to those original 11 disciples, but also to us. So what are they? First of all, the risen Jesus calls us to make disciples. 
Sometimes we can uh, hear the word disciple and we can sort of uh, never really ask ourselves what it actually means. Well, the word disciple means learner. It's like having L plates. It took me 22 years to pass my driving test. I didn't uh, stick at it all of that time, uh, but I metaphorically had L plates on throughout uh, those years. Disciples are learners. They're not the finished product. When Jesus called the 12 disciples by the lake at Galilee, for the most part, Jesus didn't ask them to sign up to a doctrinal statement first, did he? Jesus told those original disciples when he called them in Galilee, he told them that God's kingdom was arriving, he gave them an experience of what that meant, and he invited them to come on board with his kingdom, didn't he? And if we really believe in Jesus' resurrection, if we really believe that Jesus is reigning now, we will show a similar confidence. We'll show a similar confidence in inviting people to experience his presence because we'll expect that reality to change their lives. Our whole approach to mission now at Christchurch is really based on welcome. And it's a welcome that is seeking to help people to encounter the reality of Jesus. And it's that reality that then draws people further towards him. It's that reality of the presence of Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. You see, we're not called to harass people or badger them to keep at them, like that illustration that I gave earlier of that uh, mother nagging her son constantly. But what we are called to do is to extend a generous and open welcome. Confident that the presence of the risen Jesus will do the rest. It really does work. It really does happen. When churches can be full of people extending such a warmth and such a welcome to people, we're fortunate here because plenty of people do come into the building. We don't necessarily have to go out and grab them. But it really does make a difference. Fairly soon, I'm going to be producing a booklet on how we can get more involved in mission through Christchurch. That does sound a bit scary, doesn't it? But it isn't. We currently have lots of groups running here at this church, attended by lots of people who are currently outside of Christchurch. And what those groups need, or what they need more of, because this is already to some degree happening, is members of Christchurch committing, not to all of those groups, just to some of them, or perhaps one in particular, and committing to be there and to be friendly and welcoming. To extend to those people who come a generous and open welcome. Confident that as they respond, the presence of the risen Jesus will do the rest. It's a way that we can all be further involved in the mission of this church. If we really believe in the reality of the risen Jesus, if we really believe that he has risen from the dead and he is reigning now, then actually we'll have a greater confidence to participate in this encouragement of people to be his disciples.
to be warm and open and generous and welcoming. And very often when we fulfill that role, the reality of the risen Jesus and his presence does the rest. So that's the first point I want to make. The second is this. Secondly, the risen Jesus calls us to go to all nations. The word translated in Jesus' words as nations is the Greek word ethne. It's the words that Jews use to describe the Gentiles. It's from where we get the word ethnic. And it's an incredibly radical moment. Jesus' mission during his earthly ministry had been, in the main, overwhelmingly, just to Israel. But now, as the risen Lord of the world, Jesus is telling his followers, appropriately, to go to everyone. To go particularly to the excluded Gentiles. To those who, up to that point, had no part, or thought they had no part, in the God of Israel. And that is another reason why the early Christian mission was so explosive. In a world that was even more segregated than the world today, the early church was a glorious exception. The early church, unlike everything around them, welcomed everyone. And it particularly welcomed second or third or fourth class citizens with an inclusion and an acceptance that those people found irresistible. Not just Gentiles, not just non-Jews, but other groups such as slaves and women. The resurrection says that Jesus is Lord of the whole world and there's no bigger part of that lordship than bringing all of the world's boundaries, all of its no-go areas, crashing down. Nothing proclaims more fully that Jesus is Lord of the world than when we refuse to accept the way that the world segregates itself. Nothing shows more that Jesus is Lord. And as I say, people find that really irresistible. When you welcome people who don't expect to be welcomed, the effect is amazing. And it's a principle that can give real direction to our mission. Of course, God wants everyone to become part of his kingdom, but he wants us as his church to particularly direct our efforts towards those whom society has rejected and marginalised. And if we can identify the people who particularly fit that bill and offer them welcome and inclusion, as I say, the results are very often pretty spectacular. But there's a really vital question here, which is this. Do we really want the results that that approach would bring? Do we really want our church to become more diverse, ethnically, socially? Do we really want that to happen? Now, I hope the answer to that is a resounding yes, we do. But very often, that is the vital question. Do we want church to essentially remain comfortable for us, or do we want it to be exciting, challenging, radical, all of those things that then can sometimes make it a more uncomfortable place because it throws up lots of issues that we then have to cope with. But it means that we're fulfilling this calling that we're given. 
to go out and seek those who society has rejected, to meet them with the loving, welcome, generous inclusion that characterised Jesus' ministry and which we're called to continue. Thirdly, Jesus calls us to baptise in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we welcome new people into the church, we must never forget that the most important welcome that they're receiving is from God. We might try very hard to incarnate that welcome, but actually the welcome that people are receiving is from God himself. And it's baptism that enshrines and enacts that welcome. Baptism isn't something that actually we do. It's something that God does. And that's where its power comes from. Now, of course, I could say a lot more about that and how our baptism policy here at Christchurch fits in with our mission policy. That's an important subject, but it's really one for another occasion. But it's a reminder occurring in these verses that the work is God's work. And however much we're called to participate in that, and as I say, incarnate that welcome, the welcome is coming from God himself. We're to be humble servants of that welcome. But the power which it contains comes from God himself. And fourthly, we're called by Jesus to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. When churches become open and inclusive towards outsiders, they're often accused of watering down the challenge that comes through following Jesus. It's one of the most heartbreaking uh, things, really, that people who are particularly committed to mission very often get this accusation thrown against them, sadly, usually, or virtually always, by other Christians. They're dumbing down. They're watering down the challenge that comes from following Jesus. Now, this can definitely happen. It can definitely be a danger. But there is no inevitable correlation. Genuine evangelism combines an open welcome with an exciting and challenging vision of what following Jesus can and should be like. And the thing that combines both of these things is actually when they're both positive. Christians have sometimes behaved as if the very first lesson that outsiders need to grasp is that they're sinners, and then they've wondered why this approach hasn't been very successful. But a more biblical approach is to proclaim that through his resurrection, Jesus Christ is Lord of the whole world, and that following him is the best possible way to live. That's a positive, and that's an attractive message. I've said recently on the Paul course to those who are coming that very often our message to the people of this world needs to be there is an alternative. You needn't live in the way that very often is being suggested as the only option. And when the church can embody a message that says to people you don't need to live that way, that is far more powerful and attractive than a finger-wagging message that says you mustn't live that way. And it's all about grasping the vision that God has for human lives.
to flourish and to be fulfilled and to live life to the full. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus reigning and already being given dominion and authority and power that means that that option is a possibility. God's power has been established over this world in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we can live within that power and we can commend it to others. Now, of course, none of this, none of what I've been saying this morning means that evangelism suddenly becomes easy. But if we can grasp the significance of the event that we're celebrating during this period of Easter, we'll then see what's possible. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims that Jesus is Lord of the world now. He's not the king in waiting. He is the king who is reigning now. And as Matthew's gospel reaches its conclusion after 28 chapters, Jesus says these stunningly important words. These are the words that really can reassure us as we, I hope, decide in our hearts we are going to respond to this calling to be part of God's mission. Without these words, perhaps we'd still be left terrified and unable to do much. But Jesus says these words to his disciples. I will be with you always. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says those words at the very end of this passage, at the very end, as I say, of Matthew's Gospel. And if this is true, and if we believe it is true, then the possibilities are simply infinite. Let's pray. Father God, as we continue to celebrate Easter and the reality of you raising Jesus from the dead, we pray that we wouldn't just celebrate that as a wonderful truth, but we would seek to live by it. Father God, would you fill us with such certainty and such belief in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus that we really do act and behave as people who believe that Jesus is now reigning as Lord. Would you help us to face up to the fears that we have, the lack of belief that we often can have about whether leading people to you will make any difference and whether it in any way represents what they need. We pray that you would first inspire us to recognise the difference made by the resurrection of your Son or renew our faith in that truth. And then would you help us to live to live out that reality, both in the life of this church and in our individual lives. We pray that you would give us the power to do this, because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.